Well, good morning. It's a great morning to be inside. And uh, this, is, this is why you want to sign up for the children's ministry and not the parking ministry. It's like today, I've been away a couple of weeks and um, just very, very thankful for Noah Joyner and Jeff Doyle who capably and faithfully brought the scriptures to us uh, while I was not uh, speaking in the last couple of weeks. So very thankful for their faithfulness. It's very, it does my heart good to know uh, that <clears throat> men like that are in this position while I'm away. It's a tremendous encouragement to me. It was also a tremendous encouragement to me. Those of you who wrote words and sent notes and uh, affirmations of my proposed sabbatical in next year, uh, your kindness and generosity in those remarks was greatly appreciated. Um, so much so that it got me wondering exactly why it is that many of you are so eager for me to go away. Um, not so fast. I am still here and will be here for the foreseeable future, Lord willing. And today we are back in the Sermon on the Mount. This amazing, beautiful, life-altering sermon that Jesus delivered we call it the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in the Gospel of Matthew. Today we're in the sixth chapter as we look together at that. And as you find your way there, I'd like to pray for us as we open up the scriptures, if we could. God, we are in such need today. Our weeks have been busy and hard And often, it seems, we've been off course. And oh, how we need a word from you just to help us get back on track right now. And I, I pray, God, that, that you would give us ears to hear. And you give us hearts to obey what we hear. That your spirit would take every word that is spoken now in your name and address it beautifully and perfectly to every single person in this room. So God, we, we need your mercy and we look forward to it now. Even as the rain falls, may your spirit come and be our guide. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, in an age where we are almost obsessed with the swine flu, um, there is another disease that has gone on all around us undetected and unexposed that probably has affected you more and will affect you more than the swine flu ever will. Um, it is called affluenza. And, it, and uh, there was a, PBS did a documentary on affluenza not all that long ago and it gave birth to a website. If you go to their website, they have a self-diagnosis you can do to see if, in fact, you have been exposed to and are suffering from affluenza. And I've pulled a couple of questions from there just to run past you this morning to help you begin to think about your own heart's exposure to what is a very, very dangerous disease. Here's a couple of those self-diagnostic questions. Number one, I'm willing to pay more for a T-shirt if it has a cool corporate logo on it. 
Number two, I believe that if I buy the cocktail dress, the cocktail party will come. Here's another one. I'm uh, willing to work 40 years at a job I hate so I can buy lots of stuff. When I'm feeling blue, I like to go shopping and treat myself. It's an indicator. I usually make just the minimum payment on my credit cards. Most of the things my friends, family, and I enjoy doing together are free. And the last question in the test, I'd rather be shopping right now. And then they take you through this and you kind of categorize yourself. You add up your scores and see how you did. And if you are in the uh, severely afflicted category of people with, who actually have influenza, their recommendation is that you immediately cut up your credit cards and call a doctor. And so this morning, that's exactly what I'd like to do. The credit cards are up to you. But we want to we sit at the feet of the one on the Sermon of the Mount, Dr. Jesus, and let him diagnose how our heart's doing with all of our stuff. And so, um, if you want to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 is where we're going to start. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The idea in Jesus' teaching here is, this is really not a a warning of something that's coming, it's an exhortation about something that's present. Some of the commentators say, really, you could render this, stop storing up treasures on earth. It it was something in Jesus' day that people were already trapped in, and let's be honest, it's something we're all entangled with too. It just comes with the territory. Um, We are hoarders. It's what Americans do. According to the Self-Storage Association, just the very fact that there is a Self-Storage Association tells you that there's something wrong with with our world. Um, Our country now possesses about 1.9 billion square feet of personal storage space outside of the home. Not counting your closets. This is all those mini storage warehouses that are all around our land. 40,000 facilities owned and operated by more than 2,000 entrepreneurs and a handful of publicly traded companies as well. One out of every 11 homes also own a self-storage space. That is an increase of 75% since 1995. In last year alone, this is a couple years old, there was a 24% increase in the number of self-storage units on the market. But what's really interesting is that during this time when all this storage space has been expanding, the American, average American house grew from 1,600 square feet in 1973 to 2,400 square feet in 2004, a 50% increase. 
So while houses got bigger, bigger and family sizes got smaller, we still needed to tack on almost 2 billion square feet of extra space to store our stuff. We are what has appropriately been called stuffolators. We love our stuff. And to store up, when Jesus talks here about storing up for yourselves, it's more akin to hoarding than simply to having, though those things are often related. It's the desire for more when we really have all we need. It's the unwillingness to share because we are afraid of what we might no longer have. That's what Jesus is concerned about when he says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. He is concerned that investing in what the old translations of the Bible used to call mammon, your stuff, that investing in earthly stuff is really, Jesus said, just a bad idea. It's a bad investment. Um, you know, there was a survey in the USA Today not, uh, earlier this year about what the American dream was, and 61% of Americans said being financially secure is the American dream. And Jesus is telling us that the American dream, if that's what it is, it is not going to happen. He is telling us that you cannot be financially secure. It's a myth. It's a mirage. It's a hallucination. You cannot find security in your stuff. And so Jesus is warning us away from a sure disappointment. And instead, he commends or or better, he commands, don't miss it, for people who claim to follow Christ. These are commands, not suggestions. Jesus commands us instead to invest in heavenly treasure. And so it raises the question for all of us then, what's that look like? Where do you find a storage unit that takes care of heavenly treasure. And I was helped by um, what Pastor Tim Keller wrote in his book, The Prodigal God. He tells this story. He says, once upon a time, there was a gardener. This gardener grew an enormous carrot. So he took the carrot to his king and he said, my Lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or will ever grow Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. And so as the gardener turned to go, the king said, Wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I own a plot of land right next to yours. I want to give it to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. And the gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman in the king's court that day who overheard all of this. And he said to himself, my, if, if that is what you get for a carrot, 
Imagine what you'll get for something greater. So the next day, the nobleman came before the king, and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, My lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I have ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, Thank you, and took the horse and dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed, so the king said, let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. See, storing up treasure in heaven is when we give God the carrot. It's when we live for his pleasure, above all other pleasures, We live for the pleasure of God himself. We live for the pleasure of God being pleased with us. We live for the pleasure of God above all other pleasures. Now, more narrowly, the New Testament focus seems to fall on heavenly treasure having to do with being generous, with just giving stuff away to people who have a greater need than you. Um, You find it in Jesus' teaching in Luke 12. He says, sell your possessions... Give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. It's that same language, and it's associated here with giving to the poor. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul writes, Command the rich, that's who he's writing to, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way... They will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that's truly life. Through generosity and sharing, they lay up treasure for heaven, for the next age. It's the same, the same basic idea. See, Jesus' great concern here is not only about our return on our investment. This is not just a portfolio tip, although it surely is that. He's concerned about where our treasures lead our hearts. In a word, Jesus is saying, heart follows treasure. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I was helped by the uh, comments of uh, author D.A. Carson on this matter. He says, the things we treasure actually govern our lives. Think about that. The things we treasure actually govern our lives. What we value tugs at our minds and emotions. It consumes our time with planning, daydreaming, and effort to achieve. As Jesus puts it, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If a man wants above all else to make a lot of money, buy an extravagant house, ski in the Alps, or sail in the Mediterranean, head up his company, or buy out his competitor, build his reputation, or achieve that next promotion, advance a political opinion, or seek public office, he will be devoured by these goals. And the values of the kingdom will get squeezed out. He says, notice that none of the goals I mentioned is intrinsically bad, but none is of ultimate value either. Therefore, any of them can become evil if it is valued as ultimate treasure and thereby usurps the place of 
the kingdom. Heart follows treasure. My wife said something the other day to me, and it's one of those things that men love to hear their wives say. She said to me, my wife, and I love my wife for things like this, she said to me, we need bikes. Okay. We need, we have road bikes, Steph and I ride on the road. She said, we need mountain bikes so that as a family we can go ride on some of the trails in the triangle. So, guys, I have permission to go and buy mountain bikes for my family. Okay. So, I, I begin uh, this search. Um, you know, and, and different things ensnare different people in this regard. Some of you, it's the mall. Others of us, me for instance, it's Craigslist. Okay? This grand internet garage sale. Okay? And so I am a, on a search for mountain bikes on Craigslist every day, multiple times a day, refreshing the page. Just to see if somebody else listed a bike, you know, that would be the one. A good, used, cheap mountain bike. So I I come into the office this morning, and it's my pattern just to check. I bring up my Google homepage and refresh it to see if, if, you know, if the world came to an end overnight, I could at least lead you guys in prayer about it. So, you know, BBC News is on there, and I check to see what's going on. And what pops up, though, is the Raleigh Craigslist bike page. And I'm thinking, on Sunday morning, as I'm preparing to bring the word of God to my congregation, I'm thinking, maybe I should refresh it and see (laughs) if somebody listens. Now, I didn't, but I wanted to, and I will this afternoon. (laughs) This is dominating my life. This is like, tre- it's like a treasure hunt for me. Um, you know, I, I know a number of you have really taken a beating in the stock market, and that's been a great um, trauma for you. I, for me, not so much. Um, what, what killed me was gas prices. You know, pulling up to the gas pump and paying $4 a gallon for gas, and watching, as I fill up my big blue bus, watching it run to triple digits to fill up my gas tank, just to see a grown man weeping by the gas pump, is, it was, is just tragic. Um, see, heart follows treasure. Heart follows treasure. Um, where, where is your treasure leading you? Is it leading you to an ultimate, tragic, disappointing, sorrowful loss? Is it? We have a saying. There are no U-Hauls behind hearses. But of course, being America, um, somebody's tried it. Okay? And this is what we do. We hook it up, and then we come to our senses, and we unhook it. And then we hook it up again, and we try it another way, and then we come to our senses, and we unhook it. Jesus is commanding us 
for our good to stop laying up treasure on earth and lay up treasure in heaven. Where is your treasure leading you? What is it robbing you of? Um, Kevin Harney in his book, Seismic Shifts, tells a story that could have, if you've ever worked in the nursery, you, you've, you've watched this happen. Um, he says, a little boy sat on the floor of the church nursery with a red rubber ball in each arm, three Nerf balls clenched on the floor between his pudgy little knees. He was trying to protect all five from the other children in the nursery. The problem was he could not hold all five at once, and the ball nearest his feet was particularly vulnerable to being stolen. So whenever another child showed an interest in playing with one of the balls, he snarled to make it clear that these toys were not for sharing. He says, he says I suppose I should have stepped in and made the little guy give up one or two of the balls, but I was too wrapped up in the drama of it all. This is... This is why you don't want writers in your children's ministry. Okay? They, they're just, they're, you want them parking cars or something. Don't, don't have them in there. He says, um, for about five minutes, this little guy growled, postured, and kept the other children away from the balls like a hyena hunched over the last scraps of a carcass. This snarling little canine was not in the mood for sharing. The other kids circled like vultures around the kill, looking for a way to jump in and snatch a ball without being attacked and bitten. He said, I honestly did not know whether to laugh or cry as I watched. He said, then it struck me. This little boy was not having any fun at all. There was no cheer within 10 yards of this kid. Not only was he unhappy, but all the other kids seemed sad as well. His selfishness created a black hole that sucked all of the joy out of that nursery. And he says, when church was over and his parents came to pick him up, he left the balls behind. He says, I guess the old saying is true, you can't take it with you. Jesus is saying, you can't take it with you. And it will screw up your life in the meantime if you store up treasures on earth. What must you do to turn your wayward heart towards heaven? What what must you do? Well, the New Testament urges us to leverage our hearts by being, and I'm choosing my words very carefully, so listen close, increasingly generous. Increasingly generous. Emphasis on increasingly. To plateau in generosity is to be overtaken by a culture that's aggressively marketing mammon. It is pushing stuff at you every day. Consumer Reports, which is, by the way, was the most conservative estimate I ran across, estimates that you are receiving 247 commercial messages daily. That's 90,000 90,000, 90,000 plus a year of voices saying, you need this thing. You need more stuff. What can you do right now to leverage your heart towards heaven? Be generous.
First of all, uh, the, the primary focus of the New Testament is to be generous. Be increasingly generous. Find new ways to be generous. Leave here today with a commitment to be generous in a new way to a new person, to a new charity, at a new level, somewhere to expand your heart in the realm of generosity. A companion virtue that the New Testament commends to us is called being temperate. Being temperate. Titus 2.2 says, teach the older men to be temperate. And then it goes on down through the women and the younger men and urges them to be self-controlled, which is a very similar idea. C.S. Lewis masterfully describes the virtue of temperance this way. He says, one great piece of mischief has been done by the modern restriction of the word temperance to the question of drink. That helps people, he says, to forget that you can be just as intemperate about lots of other things. A man who makes his golf or his motorcycle the center of his life or a woman who devotes all her thoughts to clothes or bridge or her dog is being just as intemperate as someone who gets drunk every evening. Of course, he says, it does not show on the outside so easily. Bridge mania or golf mania do not make you fall down in the middle of the road. But, he says, God is not deceived by externals. Lay up treasure in heaven. Do not store up treasure on earth. This is for our good. It is an expression of the care of our Savior for us, protecting us from certain tragic, disappointing loss. So moderate your hobbies so you can increase your generosity for the pleasure of God. You know, the the passage we're looking at today really could be summarized in three questions. The first question is, where's your treasure? Where's your treasure? The second one is, how's your vision? How's your vision? And that comes in the next two verses. Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of your body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? This is very similar to what Jesus has just said. In in this teaching, the eye is akin to the heart. In the previous teaching, a good eye, a clear eye, is an eye of single focus. And with respect to money, it would be a generous eye. A bad eye is a divided eye. With respect to money, it would be a covetous eye. Um, The word biblical commentary does kind of their own translation of the Bible. And this is how they render this text. It says, the eye enables a person to see light. If therefore your eye is generous... Your whole person will be full of light. But if your eye is covetous, your whole person will be full of darkness. So the emphasis here in the context seems to be on being generous or being covetous. Um, In the book of Deuteronomy, it says, Beware that there's no base thought in your heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of remission is near, and your eye is hostile. 
Your eye is evil. This is where that expression comes from, the evil eye. Toward your poor brother and you give him nothing, then he may cry to the Lord against you and it will be a sin in you. A covetous, greedy, miserly eye. How do you see your stuff or stuff that's out there? How, how do you see others' stuff? Are you competing? Are you keeping up? Are you desiring and coveting and begrudging? Or do you look through stuff at stuff through generous eyes? When you see stuff, you don't see first your own wants, but you see the needs of others. We have an amazing weekend that happens here annually at our church. Um, it's the kind of thing that I would say, plan your vacations around. Make sure you're here. That's our intermissions conference. And this year we added a new twist. Um, we added an auction. People donated all kinds of stuff. Small groups made these amazing baskets of goodies and coupons and stuff you could buy, you know, spa baskets with pedicures and manicures, and you could buy movie baskets that had games and popcorn, all these kind of stuff. And people came and paid way too much money for those baskets. Um, and I was a skeptic. I didn't really like the auction concept. Um, I didn't like the idea of people giving in order to get something. It seemed to introduce a motive into our giving that I was not particularly excited about. And so I was a little bit ambivalent about the auction coming in. Um, but I got caught up in it, and I paid way too much money for a basket, thanks to my eight-year-old, and whichever one of you ran up the bidding against him, I'll find out who you are. We have records, and I will track you down. Um, but something amazing happened that just dwarfed my concerns about the auction. There were people buying these baskets, bidding way too much money, just running the bidding up far beyond several times beyond what the basket was worth. And then when they got their prize, they gave it away. They didn't use it. They knew somebody else who needed it more, and they bought it for them. They had a good eye at that auction. They saw clearly, and light flooded their soul because they they paid an astronomical amount of money that went to help some of our families overseas with projects they've got. And then they gave their treasure away. You know, with wrongful treasures, Jesus warns us of a tragic, impending loss. With bad vision, he now warns us of what he calls in this passage a great darkness. In the book Freakonomics, they tell this story uh, back in the 1980s. There's an IRS research officer who was doing audits and he realized something. He realized that Americans were claiming dependents inappropriately. Sometimes it was divorced families innocently both claiming the same child, but sometimes it was people claiming dependents named Fluffy, who were obviously pets and not children. And so he came up with the idea that if they wanted to close that loophole, they could raise a significant amount of money, and they, all they needed to do was require people to 
um, put the social security number of their dependent on their tax return. And that had not been done up to that point in time. And eventually that got implemented in the year 1986. And in 1986, mysteriously, 7 million dependents disappeared from the face of the earth. Just poof, they were gone. And the IRS raised $3 billion more billion in revenue as a result of that. Where, where are your eyes leading you? What are they causing you to compromise on? What are they causing you to say? Um, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, the love of money, it's a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. What darkness, what great darkness is your vision of your stuff letting into your soul? One of, one of my great privileges has been in uh, recent years to travel um, to other parts of the world and visit North Wake families who are serving Christ there, to, to uh, be in Asia and Africa and um, in the Middle East. And in those regions particularly, in places like Turkey and India and Indonesia, uh, there is a, a thing you see almost everywhere you go and my pictures got corrupted here, but you can see that. This is jewelry with a blue pendant on that looks like an eye. This is called the evil eye. And you see it on the back of uh, truck bumpers all over India and in Indonesia, and people wear it. And the idea, uh, we have that expression, you know, somebody gives you an evil eye, right? They give you a dirty look, basically. But in their culture, it actually means someone has cursed you. The evil eye is actually a curse. And by wearing this talisman, it repels the evil eye. And so you see it everywhere. You even see it on some Turkish airline planes. Um, and it, uh, it has its roots in some of the Islamic cultures in an expression from the Quran that refers to the reality of the evil eye, um, which probably the Quran has its root in this teaching of Jesus and in, in the book of Deuteronomy. But Jesus' teaching and thinking, Christian thinking and teaching is different from that that's rooted in these parts of the world because Jesus is not concerned about someone else's evil eye. He's concerned about yours. Okay? It's your eye that he's worried about, not how someone else is looking at you. And the remedy is remarkably different. It is not about wearing a talisman. It is, again, the remedy to the evil eye, to your evil eye, is this kind of glad-hearted, wildly sacrificial generosity. It's giving stuff away. It's looking at things with the need of others in mind rather than your own wants. Somebody asked author Philip Yancey, uh, how should you pray in the midst of a financial crisis such as our nation finds itself in? And his answer was very helpful. He says, a friend from Chicago, Bill Leslie, used to say that the Bible asks three main questions about money. He's very insightful. Question number one, how did you get it? Legally and justly or exploitatively? Question number two, what are you doing with it? Indulging in luxuries or helping the needy? And the third question, 
What is your money doing to you? He says some of Jesus' most trenchant parables and sayings go straight to the heart of that last question. He says the same week that global wealth shrank by $7 trillion, Zimbabwe's inflation rate hit a record 231 million percent. Inflation was 231 million percent in Zimbabwe. This means if you had saved 1 million Zimbabwean dollars by Monday, on Tuesday it was worth $158. He says, this sobering fact leads me to the third and most difficult stage of prayer in crisis. I need God's help in taking my eyes off my own problems in order to look with compassion on the truly desperate. So what can you do? What, what must you do? What is God prompting you to do today to clear up your vision about your stuff? An act of generosity towards someone in need? Very likely. But perhaps as well, you need to study deeply and think deeply on this. Not only do you need to act, but you need to reprogram the way you think about stuff and about treasure. And towards that end, I would suggest, if that's you this week, that I know of no better place than 1 Timothy chapter 6 in your Bibles. Just this week, for you to read that every day and think about, what are the principles here? What are the principles for me here? 1 Timothy chapter 6 is outstanding. We also have a resource that we love here at the church. It's been very helpful for me personally, and we give it to everyone who joins our church. It's called The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn powerful little skinny book. If you don't read much, you can do, you can do this. Okay? This is a small but powerful read. And it's available to you by the generosity of the Barnabas Way in Raleigh who donated a number of these books to us. There's a couple cases out there around the column on the feed boxes where the feed ministry is. You can just pick one up on your way home if God's speaking to you about this area and if you will read it. Okay? This is not to pad your library, bibliophiles. You have to read it if you take it. Okay? But it is there. It is free. And if you do not have a copy, I would highly commend uh, that you take it. So Jesus asks us, where's your, where's your treasure? And then he says, how's your vision? And lastly, in this last verse we'll look at, he says, who's your master? Who's your master? Because no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot. You cannot. You cannot serve both God and money. I hope you don't miss what Jesus is saying. He's saying it is simply not possible for you to serve two masters. You are not going to be the first person in history to prove Jesus wrong on this one, okay? Sure, I can, I can do this, Jesus. He has told you. In the kindness of his heart, he's told you what you are trying to do to serve God and your stuff is impossible. 
You cannot do it. I love the West African proverb. It, it says the same thing. It says, the man who tries to walk two roads will split his pants. You cannot do it. Trust me, but more importantly, trust Jesus. It's impossible. And the language here is strong. You'll hate the one and love the other. And I know some of you who are still looking for a way around this command are saying, well, I, I don't hate love. Isn't that a little strong? I, don't, I love Jesus. I don't hate money. I, I love money. I don't hate... It's a Semitic expression that um, is a bit of overstatement. What it really means is you'll, you're going to end up preferring one to the other. You're going to prefer one over the other. And so it's a, the expression embraces a little bit of overstatement. It's simply the idea that you can't dance to two bands at the same time. You can't. You will follow one or the other. Um, but... Having said that, I'm not at all convinced that from God's perspective, this is overstatement. I think it expresses exactly how God feels about us hedging our bets and serving another master. I mean, you start chasing through the Bible. It starts in the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You fast forward all the way to the New Testament, Jesus' own teaching. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You back up a few pages right in the middle, and Isaiah says these powerful words in chapters 42 and 48. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give, I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. For my own sake, God says, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. God will not share his glory, and for that reason, it is impossible to serve God and money. God will have none of it. And it makes us, it just gives us a sense of what it is that God requires of those of us who say, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. Sure, that's me. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and if that's not enough, with all your strength, with all you have, love me. And it's, Scary interesting to me that mammon, money and stuff is portrayed here as a living, breathing master whom you are going to be tempted to serve in lieu of Almighty God. Is that happening to one degree or another to you? Is that whom you're serving? Have you stepped out on that slippery slope and now you're sliding farther and farther down? Is that whom you aim to please? Is that why you work? Is that why you do what you do? To get a little bit more? To find the pursuit of happiness? Is that why you do what you do? Is your work for money or is your work for God? 
What pleasure are you seeking above all other pleasures? Let me leave you with this thought from Daniel Doriani. And then we'll close in prayer and worship. He says, consider the heart issue of all of this this way. Think of a hostile government where Christianity is outlawed. And an agent of that government drags you into court and accuses you of loving Jesus and following him. He says, could your checkbook and your credit cards be summoned as evidence against you? If those auditors examined your finances, would they find proof of your love of God? Irrefutable proof. He says, if our vacation and restaurant bills exceed our giving, what might that signify? And on that thought, let's pray. God, what might that signify? It's probably not the right question. What does that signify? And it just signifies, God, that we, we've been seduced a bit and we've gotten off course again. And the 90,000 voices that we've heard this year have captured our attention more than you. And Somebody's taken your place in our hearts, and it's shameful just even to say that. Having sent your son on this great suffering rescue mission for us, and now we're forgetting and letting others creep in and steal our affections away from you. Um, God, have mercy on us. Hear our prayers right now just for forgiveness and to repent. And we need that mercy from you and we need mercy from you to obey, to walk out of here and be different. Put our money in a different vault, our stuff in different hands to see differently to serve you alone. So God, help us. Even in these moments. To put pleasing you above all other pleasures. God, we need your help with that and we trust that by the great work of Christ, his death and his resurrection and his spirit who indwells us, by the word in the midst of his people, We have the grace we need from you, and we thank you, and we worship you now. You know, if God is...